0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out how the staff and volunteers at the Caridad Community Kitchen are striving to help those in need of food assistance. Adiba Nelson returns to share the experience of caring for her mother and her daughter under the constant pressure of staying healthy during the pandemic. And the author of Migrating to Prison, America's Obsession with Locking Up Immigrants tells about researching who is really profiting from America's private prison industry and the surprising answer. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. During the COVID-19 pandemic, our nation's unemployment rate has risen to a historic level. But government relief checks to individuals and small businesses are being unevenly distributed. More people in our community than ever before find themselves in need of food assistance. For many, asking for that help can be difficult. The Karidad Community Kitchen was already part of a system for preparing and distributing free meals while also paying special attention to the safety and dignity of those they serve. We'll learn more next in a story produced by Alisa Ivanitskaya. 22 million Americans newly out of work since the middle of March. Uh, nearly 350,000 jobless claims here in Arizona, and that's just the people who have filed. I don't know Pima County numbers, but our share should be about 50,000 or so of those newly unemployed friends and neighbors. That is Dr. Bob England, Pima County Health Director. In a daily briefing on April 17th, he announced the creation of a hotline that provides information about help available in our community, including food assistance. One service offering immediate help is the Caridad Community Kitchen, a program of the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. Its purpose is to provide meals to everyone who needs them, no questions asked. Here is Megan Black, a community food bank manager who oversees the program.
1: It is open to anyone in the community who needs meals. It's really low barrier. No ID is required. No pre-registration is required. We serve a few days a week here at our kitchen, but we primarily uh, prepare meals here and then send them out to other partner sites who distribute on our behalf in different parts of town.
0: There are seven sites around Tucson. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, some of these offered hot meals. But now the kitchen is only making sandwiches available as grab-and-go meals.
1: We've seen um, quite an increase in people, about double the number of people um, that usually come to get meals. But it really depends on the site and part of town that people are in.
0: In the past, the program provided 1,500 meals every day. Now they're producing an average of 2,500.
1: We transition all of our community meal sites to grab-and-go sites so that people are still able to access food, but they're not congregating together in one place. You get your meals and then you leave.
0: Megan Black says each person that visits the meal site receives two sandwiches, two pieces of fruit or fruit cups, bottled water, and a bonus snack if they're available.
1: Uh, We've also made um, quite a few adjustments to our meal production and distribution practices um, to allow for a lot of distance between people when they're working, increased sanitation in our kitchen. And our sanitation and hygiene practices were already very, very good, but we're taking extra steps now to keep everybody safe. We are regularly sanitizing all the handles of our doors throughout the facility, walk-in coolers areas that people are touching a lot. And again, our sanitation is very high. And so it's really just been pivoting and adjusting every day based on best practices for keeping people safe and continuing to serve people.
0: But asking for help, especially for the first time, can be difficult. In an interview before the pandemic, Megan Black discussed the steps the program implements to break stigma.
1: Our goal is to really provide the most dignified experience possible when people come to get meals from us, um, provide um, a safe and positive setting where people can come and get a meal. Another part of that dignity of service is providing meals that meet people's nutritional needs, other dietary needs, including cultural preferences, just things that they like to eat so that it's a really positive experience for them.
0: Another group served by Caridad Community Kitchen is senior citizens. That program is called Meals on Wheels.
1: The Meals on Wheels program is in partnership with Catholic Community Services and Pima Council on Aging and Lutheran Social Services. Um, And we prepare the meals for um, seniors in their program, both seniors at community centers and then seniors who are unable to leave their homes and get a home-delivered meal.
0: During the pandemic, the program is still delivering around 2,000 meals every day to seniors in our community.
1: We are continuing to provide meals for that program and just putting plans in place to ensure people have all of the food that they need. So we've made our menus easy to prepare so that we can make sure that we have time to get it all done and that we're finding balance for staff as well. But we're continuing to have high levels of sanitation and still fulfilling all of our partnerships there.
0: Like many nonprofits, Kari Dodd Community Kitchen used to rely on volunteers. However, during the pandemic, the program has asked many of them to stay home and limit the number of people working in the kitchen at one time.
1: We've had a lot of community members interested in helping the food bank, which is wonderful. And we had been directing them to our country club site because we had a really high need for people to pack food boxes. So right now, we're not actively recruiting additional volunteers. What we've done is adjust our staffing schedule So that our staff that are usually maybe in the front or doing other activities are directed to the kitchen and filling our volunteer slots with people that are have already volunteered at the kitchen. So they're already familiar with our sanitation and hygiene practices. Um, And we've also been engaging other food bank staff to work in the kitchen as well.
0: The pandemic has also affected the supply chain. The community kitchen was not able to rely on donations from grocery stores. So the program is on active search for new partnerships, while focusing on buying food and sourcing from government supplies.
1: It's not the typical, you know, like grocery store donations that we're using, because obviously they have a very high demand right now. So we're really focused on either purchasing the food um, or getting those government commodities that are available to us.
2: Black
0: says the best way to support the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona is to give money.
1: Honestly, the most helpful thing is to make a financial donation online. But then the second most helpful thing is if if they are um, healthy and able to volunteer, they can also visit us online um, and check out the drop-in volunteer opportunities to see where they can
0: support. And she stresses that those who need help should not be shy to ask for it.
1: You know, people who have maybe not participated in our programs before that find themselves in the situation where they need to, they're welcome to reach out to us, and we're here to help everyone.
0: This story was produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya. To find distribution sites for community meals and emergency food boxes, visit communityfoodbank.org slash gethelp. Also, the hotline number is 520-724-5735. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author and activist, and a devoted mother and daughter. She's also the busiest person I know, never losing a second when she could be creating art or building connections. Even now in this time of turmoil and fear, Adiba continues to make other people's lives better, regardless of how much her resiliency is tested.
3: I'm Adiba Nelson, and this is The Word. Coronavirus, COVID-19, or as Black Twitter has so affectionately named it, Rona. Rona is here. Rona is that acquaintance who comes over uninvited and stays for dinner and dessert, and then stays the night because, well, heck, they're already here, might as well get comfy. But what Rona fails to realize, or perhaps realize but doesn't care about, is the fact that you're a single mom on a budget with a disabled child and an autoimmune disorder. And this jerk just coughed. In your house. Which she wasn't even invited to in the first place. Now, I say the above with my usual snark, humor, and sass, because this is my chosen coping mechanism for basically every trauma in life. But in reality, I'm terrified. I don't let this be known to my mother, who is 64 years old with COPD and chronic asthma and 34% lung capacity. i forced her to quarantine herself, so I'm running her errands for her. As an only child, I have no choice. We laugh over Google Duo, but inside, I'm nervous. I have to expose myself to keep her unexposed. And the truth is, I haven't been feeling great. Yes. That's right, I've been sick too. Though I'm fairly sure it's not that witch rona, a few days ago I was definitely feeling bad. Achy hip joints, slight tickle in my throat, mild dry cough. I didn't want to admit it to myself that I might be sick, mostly because I'm the aforementioned single mom raising a disabled daughter. So I attributed all of this to my autoimmune disorder, erythema nodosum. You see, getting sick really isn't an option for me. I don't get to just tap out and let someone else take over for a little bit, especially not now. So a few days ago, I got on a video chat with my daughter's amazing pediatrician because my sweet girl had a pretty bad cold, and I wanted to make sure that's all it was. She had a mild fever accompanying her sneeze and runny nose, and since Rona seems to be all up in everybody's business, I had to do my due diligence. However, that was the same morning I woke up with a slight tickle in my throat and seemingly dry cough. Of course, my first thought was Rona. My second thought was, this chick played too much. And my third thought, my grandest and absolutely everything thought, was Emery. Emery is my 10-year-old daughter who has starshine where her eyes should be. She is like Rainbow Bear brought to life, full of sunshine and hugs, who pours love into everything and everyone she meets. You're only a stranger for the first five seconds of meeting her. After that, it's all fist bumps, elbow bumps, blowing kisses, and hunts. That's my Emery. Emery is love personified. She is also a girl who uses a wheelchair for mobility, a communication device, and me, her mama, for everything else. I bathe her, I feed her, I dress her, as much as she'll let me. And I assist in all of her toileting needs, including getting her into and out of her pull up. I also brush her teeth. Basically, anything most of your children do on their own on a daily basis, I do for mine. Of course, my child makes every attempt to be independent, but at this time in our lives, it looks more like interdependence. And I'm okay with that because I'm her mom. It's my job to do all of these things. But this is precisely why I can't get the Rona, because if I go down, who steps up my quarantined 64-year-old mother i thought of this as i listened to her pediatrician explain that emory probably just had a cold and then i coughed and we both just kind of looked at each other's pixelated faces through the computer screen and then i finally asked what had to be asked and what about me we went down my list of symptoms slight headache tickle in the throat slight dry cough mildly achy hip joints that's it. And then he said it. From what you're describing, it sounds like you probably have the virus. I know he said other things, but to tell you the truth, I have no recollection. From that point on, my thoughts immediately turned to Emery. It's me and this kid alone in this apartment, social distancing like we were being paid. But in actuality, I am losing money as a public speaker and author. I had banked on sales at the Tucson Festival of Books that Rona decided to ruin. Now this doctor just said Rona probably weaseled her way in. We ended our video chat with smiles and waves and Emery blowing kisses and as soon as I closed my laptop, I set Emery up on the couch with another rousing episode of Raven's House and retreated to my patio to sob. What would I do? What would I do with my daughter if this thing got worse and I had to go to the emergency room? What would I do with my daughter if I had to get admitted? ordinarily i'd have respite come in and save the day but thanks to miss rona that's a no-go what would happen to my daughter and suddenly 2012 flashed before my eyes in 2012 due to extreme financial hardship i briefly contemplated placing my child in an emergency shelter in the hopes that someone would come along and give her a better life i obviously never made the call but now eight years later I found myself once again contemplating this very idea if Rona were here to stay and I don't have a plan B for this thing. Every ache in my joints sends me running to the CDC website to see if that's a symptom of Rona inviting her equally jacked up play cousin COVID over to play. And though my cough is now wet, yay phlegm, I still internally panic with each one. If one single cough doesn't have phlegm in it, I'm coughing until some shows up. Is that gross? Yep, it sure is. But right now, it's the only thing keeping me sane. Insanity is not an option for me. Relying on an older mother with respiratory health issues is not an option for me. Flying my disabled child by herself across the country to live with my best friend and her very healthy family is not an option for me. I just have to make it to the other side of this thing. That's my only option. I have to push through this. I need to kick Rona to the curb. I'm a single mom with an underlying condition raising a child with a disability during a global pandemic. Or as I now refer to her, that witch Rona.
0: That essay was published in the Washington Post. You can find more from Adiba Nelson on her website, The Full Nelson. You can also watch a story produced for Arizona Illustrated that shows what daily life is like for Adiba and Emery at azpm.org. Adiba Nelson is an independent contributor to this show, and her commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona Public Media. Legal or natural-born citizens of the United States rarely have to consider the double standard that applies to non-citizens when the criminal justice system is involved. Even those who are here legally face longer waiting times in detention. The specifics of their situation can become lost amid the tidal wave of cases that are being tried in immigration court, and most are denied access to proper representation regardless of the offense. This nexus of immigration and criminal law is the focus of the best-selling book Migrating to Prison: America's Obsession with Locking Up Immigrants. It is the second book on the subject by Cesar Cualtemac Garcia Hernandez, a migration scholar and associate professor at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. He was interviewed by AZPM's Jake Steinberg in early February before COVID-19 became recognized as a public health crisis in the United States.
2: In your book, you argue that America should stop sending migrants to prisons and other detention facilities. If these people are coming into the country without permission, why shouldn't they be imprisoned?
4: We can certainly go around locking up migrants if we want to, but if the goal is to improve the quality of the legal process that already exists, uh, we can do that without locking up migrants. Going back to the Reagan years, actually, the government's been piloting projects. Sometimes it does it itself. Sometimes it's done it uh, through an NGO, a nonprofit organization. Um, But time and time again, those pilot projects have shown that if we provide folks uh, with uh, access to lawyers so we've ride them with access to social workers who are going to provide some stability when they're going through a high, highly stressful legal process um, then you're going to uh, be showing uh, remarkably high success rates of people showing up to their court dates people staying out of trouble and those are the two goals that the law currently says are justifications for for locking up uh, migrants and no, no nothing else's
2: What are some of the other ways that the uh, immigration system is different from the uh, legal system for citizens?
4: many of the things that happen on a daily basis in communities around the United States don't have the same consequences for folks who are not U.S. citizens as they do for people who are U.S. citizens. Take Denver, where where I live and work. Uh, marijuana is sold all over the place in, in Denver, um, and yet for folks who are not U.S. citizens, that's enough. Uh, buying marijuana that is completely legal under state law um, is enough to get you locked up by ICE and put into the deportation process. So there's an enormous double standard there um, that exists in communities around, around the country.
2: Why shouldn't we have a higher standard for those who want to come into the country?
4: Yeah, because I think it, it fails to recognize that um, none of us are um, infallible human beings. None of us are perfect people. We all make mistakes. In fact, some of us make mistakes and in the moment that we're making those mistakes, we wish w- we could stop ourselves and we don't stop ourselves f- from from doing that. Um, and so so, so per- imperfections um, are, are not flaws that come with people who aren't US citizens, that they're part of what makes us human. But for folks who are not U.S. citizens, the consequences are, are ratcheted up by immigration law. So I've spent most of my adult life on college campuses, for example. And we know that on college campuses, young women are being sexually assaulted on a, a regular basis. The the rates of, of sexual abuse of young undergraduates is remarkably high in the United States. And yet we're not having police going down, uh, knocking down uh, doorways and investigating and prosecuting and convicting people. No one goes to a college campus, it says there goes a criminal undergraduate. And the reason isn't because those people are more morally upstanding. It's only because they're not actually being investigated, prosecuted, and convicted, and therefore they're not being labeled a criminal.
2: I would like to talk a little bit about sort of how we got to where we are today. So you write about in your your book about how President Eisenhower and the Supreme Court of the 1950s were prepared to end uh, migrant imprisonment. What happened?
4: The Eisenhower administration actually shut down uh, most of the detention facilities that existed in the middle of the 1950s. In November 1954, Eisenhower's attorney general, Herbert Brownwell, went to to a naturalization ceremony in Ebbets Field in New York, and he said, look, we've been locking up folks for for decades, but we're going to stop. And the most important facility that was shut down in November of 1954 was one on Ellis Island, the very same Ellis Island that basically all of us know as the place that welcomed generations of newcomers but it was also an immigration prison with an ironic view of the Statue of Liberty and after that that moment at the end of 1954 for the next 25 years or so the government's position was not to lock up people and it wasn't until the late 1970s when that policy started to shift and started to shift rapidly in the direction that we we now know it
2: Right. You get the sort of tough-on-crime legislation of the 80s and 90s going on to uh, today. You spent a lot of uh, your book describing the system under President Obama. Now, we hear, of course, a lot about President Trump's immigration policies over the past couple of years. But what was that system like under Obama, and how did it sort of tee up what we're, what we're seeing today?
4: Under President Obama, we saw the largest number of people locked up in immigration prisons than ever before in the history of the United States, and it wasn't until President Trump that that number was surpassed. So I think what we're seeing now under President Trump is certainly a historical record, but one that surpasses a fairly recent historical record. So I think of the Trump administration's immigration uh, policing practices, not as being an anomaly, but as being another record in a pre-existing trend. I, I think... I think it's it's important to not imagine that the uh, folks who are locked up these days, that that started happening in January 2017, and it's not going to end the day that President Trump leaves the White House either.
2: You know, a couple crazy statistics here. 65% of ICE detainees are held in private facilities. And uh, that the private prison industry gets about three million dollars from ICE every day. So it's not just people working in the prisons that are profiting from the system. It's these, it's these private corporations as well. And you yeah. go on at length in your book as well about um, anyone with a with a pension or a retirement plan could potentially be um, complicit here.
4: It's not only entirely possible that anyone with a pension plan or a retirement plan could be uh, involved inadvertently in financing private immigration prisons. Uh, it's it turns out I am. I participate in my employer's uh, retirement plan. There's one option. Uh, I basically just select the target retirement year and then the management company does the rest. Uh, and it, this didn't occur to me until one day I was in class talking about these issues with my students, and one of the students Uh, Asked, well, who owns these facilities? And it occurred to me, oh, the two biggest private prison operators in the United States are publicly held companies. That That is, they sell stock, and I own stock. And it occurred to me that maybe I do. And after I investigated some, it turns out that's right. So I think this is not something that blame can't be put on just other people um, in some distant place with horns on their heads. I think just like we can't imagine that the folks who who are locked up are are demons of some different different species, Um, the folks who are profiting off of these facilities, um, not only do they look a whole lot like me, they are like me.
2: In your practice, have you encountered any stories that you feel are emblematic of some of the um, failures and pitfalls of the system?
4: There's one gentleman in particular who I write about in, in the book whose life experience is always at the forefront of my mind because of so many similarities it has with, with my own life. That's a, a gentleman named Jerry Armijo. Jerry was raised in South Texas in the same community that, that I was raised in. Uh, only after high school, I went off to college and Jerry went and joined the U.S. Army. And while I was trying to figure out what was expected of me in college, Jerry was trying to avoid bombs in Iraq. And one day as he was patrolling in Iraq in a, in a tank, um, his tank went over an IED. The IED blew right through the bottom of the, the vehicle. It injured his leg. It gave him uh, PTSD. And so he got sent back to Texas to, to recover. And unfortunately, he didn't get the help that he needed. And so he started self-medicating in the way that so many others do uh, with drugs. He was going through do, doing that until the police caught up with him. And he was going through the criminal justice system in a special court set up for veterans when, when one day he stopped showing up because ICE had gotten hold of him and sent him to an immigration prison. So Jerry turned from being a, a war hero to being what politicians like to refer to as a criminal alien in a matter of uh, one bomb and you know, a, a shoddy mental health care system and, and a few bad decisions later.
2: Right, Is that double standard you talked about where this man is. Because Jerry was uh,
4: a member of the U.S. Army, but the thing is, uh, I was born about seven miles north of the Rio Grande River in Texas, and he was born about seven miles south of the river in northern mexico meaning he's not a u.s citizen he has a green card he's been a lawful permanent resident for most of his life Um, so he can be trusted with a tank on behalf of the u.s army but he can't be trusted to be here
2: where do we go from here? How, how do you see a way to make the system fairer?
4: I think we have to start by asking what it is that we're trying to accomplish when we're trying to lock up people. If we're just trying to lock up people for the sake of locking up people, we can always find a reason. And right now we do find a reason. The law gives us two reasons, trying to keep the community safe, trying to make sure that folks are showing up to court. But the reality is we know how to do that without locking up people, without putting people behind barbed wire and steel doors. And what I'm proposing isn't necessarily cheaper, but what I'm proposing, um, is is something that um, promotes uh, freedom um, of the individuals who are currently locked up while also helping to boost the legitimacy of the legal process. And that's something I think all of us who care about the legitimacy of, uh, of legal outcomes should be supportive.
2: Cesar Cuauhtémoc García Hernández is the author of Migrating to Prison, America's Obsession with Locking Up Immigrants. Cesar, thank you for joining me.
0: It's been a pleasure. That interview was conducted by Jake Steinberg. You can listen to a longer version on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.